Amen. Amen. Haven't you been blessed this morning? Hey, Sarah, hey, thank you so much uh, for serving us today. Hey, our kids, you guys, you can go ahead and slide back to Redemption Kids. And, and if you're here with a child and you haven't checked them in yet, you can just follow um, our, our volunteers all the way down uh, to the gym below, and they'll, they'll get you squared away back there. As they're sliding out, why don't you grab your Bibles um, or turn your Bibles on, whatever you're using. If you, if you don't have a Bible, we have a number in the back on the way in sitting out there. Just grab one of those. And uh, we're going to be in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. If you've got one of the Bibles that we've provided, that's on page 1021, 1021. One other note, just as, as you think about your day, if you're new with us, we have a lunch specifically designed for you, and it's called Next. And that's happening today. So right after the service, literally, like, as soon as we're over, um, we'll have people in the lobby. We'll show you where to go. Uh, next, we say, is a place to begin and belong. You'll get to meet some of our, of our staff, some of our other members, and really it's a place to learn about what would it look like to take a next step with Jesus and a next step with Redemption Hill Church. And so free food. Um, hey, you can't turn that away. We promise we'll be done 45 minutes, um, we want to respect your time, but I would lo- I'm, I'm going to be in there. I would love to meet you. Um, so anybody, if you haven't been to Next, we'd love for you to join us after the service today. Well, I'm sure many of you um, are, are wanting an update on Pastor Tanner. Um, I, I'm, I'm not our lead pastor. I'm John Chastine. I, I've been with Tanner. We moved up here together to plant Redemption Hill Church. Um, but uh, many of you have heard this past week, was a pretty wild week in the life of, um, of, of Tanner, of, of T, what I call him. Um, man, here's what happened. Last week was our sixth anniversary service. We had a great Sunday. Um, but actually before that, many of you may not have known, um, last Saturday, Tanner came down with some intense pains in his stomach. Um, and so he, he literally, he texted me. I think Lee and I were, were just getting ready to crawl in bed at like 10.30 p.m. last Saturday night. Said, hey, John, get a sermon ready. I may need you tomorrow. <laughs> Aren't you glad um, that Tanner made it? Uh, so I looked at Lee and said, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Um, so we went to sleep and we prayed. We were going to pray really hard uh, for Tanner to get well. Well, he woke up in the morning um, feeling much better. Um, and uh, shot me a text, hey, John, I, I'm good to go. You know, don't worry about that sermon. So I was like, Whew, good, because, you know, I, I'm not all that prepared either. Um, and uh, so, man, he came. And as you can imagine, reflecting back, I mean, there was a lot that God had put on Tanner's heart. Being in an anniversary service, celebrating all that God's done in our church, plus as many of you that were here, he, he shared about the Ripple Project and, and how God had just through prayer and, and dreaming about a community space and, 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 and commitments of over $32,000. Like that, that was news that he wanted to share with you guys. Um, and so, man, he preached. Man, we had a great Sunday. Wasn't the jazz brunch? Wasn't that uh, great? Many of you guys um, volunteered, served, and, and sacrificed to pull that off. So thank you, man. It was a great Sunday. But literally, as soon as the j- jazz brunch is winding down, my last a vision of Tanner is walking up those stairs, and he's like, like going step by step. Man, he was just, he was overcome with pain. He literally went straight to the ER um, from our jazz brunch, and he was in the hospital all the way up until this past Thursday. So Sunday through Thursday, and what had happened is he had a tear in his appendix, and so uh, I mean that's a pretty, you know, pretty scary deal, um, and it was leaking just. 
bacteria and stuff in his body causing pain and then some other things kind of complicated it. Um, and so um, he, he's home right now, resting. He came home Thursday. And, and, and what they're doing, they couldn't immediately, usually when you have a problem with your appendix, they go and they, they have surgery or they remove it. Well, because he had a tear and there was all kind of bacteria, they were afraid of infection. And so he's been on antibiotics all week, trying to clean everything up. They're actually draining some things out of him um, for the next week. And then um, this is going to be a long journey. Um, this is probably in the next month or two, he's going to have surgery, uh, and, um, and then there'll be some, um, some recouping from that. So I'll, I'll just say this. That, that's the latest on Tanner. He texted me this morning, and we tell you guys, hey, I love you guys. I miss you. Keep praying for me. And uh, you may be saying, hey, h- how can I love and serve him? Um, you know, drop him a text. Um, you know, many of you got his number. Shoot him a text. He may not reply to all the texts as he's getting hit up from a lot of people. He may just hit like, and, and that's it. Um, you could drop him a card in the mail, 215 High Street. That's his address in Medford, 215, 215 High Street. You say, you know what? I just want to drop him a little encouraging note in the mail. Um, also, uh, another step that you could take, we had some friends set up um, some meals to just provide for Marsha and, and the kids and the family. If you go and, and look on my Facebook page or Lee's Facebook page, or I think we tagged Tanner and Marsha in it, I think there's still like six meals that over the next few weeks that you could sign up and say, hey, I'll, I'll bring them a meal or I'll send a gift card for a meal or I'll order takeout and send a meal. Um, those are just a few ways that you could serve him. But I got to thinking about Tanner's situation in, in, in the light of what we're preaching today. And if you were to say, you know what, I want to write him a card. What might that card say? Well, I've taken an attempt, and, and I really feel like there's a parallel to what we're going to be looking at here in First John. If I were to write Tanner um, a little note, here's my best stab at what it might say. Tanner, wow. This past week was pretty wild, wasn't it? And, and last Sunday was pretty awesome, too. I mean, wasn't it so cool to see, man, all those people that just poured in our doors? Man, one of the largest Sundays we've had in a fall season. Man, that was amazing. I mean, hearing about the Ripple Project, man, that was great. And God's financial provision, so cool. Wow, $32,000. And then just like that, you're off to the hospital. Man, I am so glad to hear that you're doing better and you're at home now. Man, having issues with your appendix is no joke. In fact, I called my dad and was sharing with him what was going on. And he said, man, back in my day, people died from things like this. And so I'm glad that, that your experience hasn't been that. We're, we're glad to hear the news that you are much better. We're, we're so thankful for the doctors, for the nurses who've cared for you, and for all the advances in medicine to, to treat the symptoms that you are having. And so as a result, you know what, Tanner? We are confident that you're going to continue to heal over the next few weeks. We're confident in God's continued provision with you. But on the other hand, hey, just, I just want, would you listen to me, Tanner? Be careful. Rest. Don't overdo it. We don't want your appendix irritated again um, before they're able to take it out. Would you take every precaution not to get that drain infected? Look, listen to your doctor's advice. Listen to your wife. Yes, Tanner. Listen to your wife. Listen to your elders. We love you. We look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Love you, John. And what did I do there? 
you see there's, there's a couple of strands in my letter. On the one hand, I, I'm displaying confidence and encouragement. Wow, you're home, you're healing. I'm confident of God's continued work in your life. And on the other hand, it's be vigilant. Look, look we pay, take every precaution. We don't want something even worse to happen. And, and simil, similar to that, that's what's going on here in 1 John. Let me just show you a few examples here. In 1 John um, chapter 2, verse 21, just flip ahead real quick. John writes, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. What stream do you see there? Does he think they know the truth? Yes. He says, this, I write not because I'm questioning. I'm writing because I know you know it. There's confidence. Look, jump forward to chapter 5, verse 13. We looked at a few weeks ago. Verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He was confident that they believed and he wanted their assurance of eternal life. And yet on the other hand, let me show you the other string. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then jump forward to verse 26 of chapter 2. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You see, we see both of these happening as we go through 1 John. On the one hand, there's extreme confidence and encouragement, and yet it's be confident and yet be vigilant. And so we're gonna see both of these strands come together in our passage today. So let's go back to 1 John chapter two. We're gonna be in verses 12 through 17 today. 1 John chapter two, verses 12 through 17. This is what the word of God says. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We could say this section right here is John saying he, he's confident in their right standing. You are forgiven. You do know God. You have overcome the evil one. There's great encouragement and confidence. And then he turns in verse 15 and he says this. It's a command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In, this, in these last three verses, he moves from confidence and encouragement to vigilance. Hey, don't, don't, in light of your sins are forgiven, you know God, you are in the light. You have over, there's victory. Don't love the world. 
It's flowing from our identity and who we are in Christ. And so, um, man, I was reflecting on this. Uh, here's how uh, um, these two go together. The, the confidence section, uh, who we are in Jesus, is supposed to motivate a life of pursuing God with all of our hearts. And so here's the point of the text and the point of our sermon today. Increasing assurance of eternal life should move us to deeper love for God and doing his will. Increasing assurance of eternal life should move us to deeper love for God and doing his will. So I'm just going to, man, our time together, I'm going to break those up into two main parts here. And so let's jump at that first part right now. And it's this, those first three verses. Be increasingly confident and grateful for your spiritual status. Now, as we unpack this, let me, let me address some of the oddities that kind of jump off the text at us. I, I don't know like what version you guys are reading, but in the, the ESV that I'm looking at here, 12 through 14 is actually, they've structured it in a way that looks different than the rest of the other text. It looks poetic almost. So we see just visually that, that they're trying to communicate there's something different that John's doing in his style here. So that's one thing. Second, we see him addressing like three different groups of people. He goes from children to fathers to young men. Like, what are you doing here? And not only that, he repeats it. Okay, John, like, what's the deal? Like, what, why are you repeating these things to us. In addition, let me just, I want to jump back into the big picture of what's been going on in 1 John. And so, so far, just bringing us up, we've worked through two triadic sections where he's been addressing the claims of the false teachers. I'll, I'll briefly just bring you up to speed here. You, you see the first section in, um, in verses 6, in verses 8, and in verses 10. And they all begin, if we say, if we say, if we say, if we say. You see that in chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 10. He, he's addressing the false teachers. If they say this, in other words, if you say you have fellowship with God and you walk in the light and he calls them a liar, their truth is not in you. He's, he's walking through. So there's that first section. He's addressing the false teachers. The second triadic section is what Tanner shared with us last week. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 4 verses 6 and verses 9. In verse 4, whoever says. In verse 6, whoever says. In verse 9, whoever says. You guys with me on structure here? So those are the two main sections he's been addressing the false teachers that have been affecting and were attempting to deceive those in the church. Now what he does is he shifts and he directly addresses the believers. So he's addressing these believers now, and notice that his goal here in this first strand is encouragement, it's confidence, and it's reassurance. So that, that's kind of structure-wise. The sec second just oddity I want to I talk about briefly is like, who's he actually writing to? So children, fathers, young men. 
There are a couple different options here. One could be that they're, he's addressing three different groups of people in the church. And it could be referring to either their physical age or their spiritual maturity. So like he could be referring to like literally like those who are young, little children, those who are older, the fathers, and physically like those who are young men. Or he could just be referring to like he could be using those in a spiritual sense, those who are like babies in Jesus and those who are, are more mature, the fathers and, and then the young men. That's one option. Another option is that he's just using these rhetorically to refer to everybody in the church. I think most likely that's probably a little bit of both, a mix of the two here. And, and, and here's, here's why. First, he says, I'm writing to you little children. Well, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. What does he say? My little children, I'm writing these things to you. In fact, I think that, let's see here, one, two, three, four, four other, five total times in 1 John, he calls them little children. This is just the, what he's calling the church there. Um, and, and so I think this, this first, I'm writing to you little children, in his mind here is, is, is there's everybody there. All of the believers in the church that he's addressing. But then what's possibly going on is after addressing everybody, maybe he thinks that he could be demeaning either the elders, the leaders, in the church, and so then he addresses two specific groups, speaking of the fathers and then the young men. But let me, no matter what he's doing, hear this. Whatever John is doing, he doesn't mean that what is true of one group is not true of everyone. So here's the deal. When you read these, and we know this, and we can look at different scriptures and compare, when he's addressing the fathers, the children, the young men, these truths are for all believers. And so let's listen up. He, he has truths for us that he's wanting to encourage, to strengthen, and reassure us. And then the final, like, why is he repeating them? Let me just ask you, why do you repeat things? Maybe they didn't get it the first time. Maybe it's because it's important. Like, you repeat things that you want people to listen to. So maybe it's just simply that. I, I don't know that he really wants us to wrestle and get these truths in this letter that he's sharing. And so I want to highlight the three powerful truths that he shares in these first three verses. And the first one is this. Your sins are forgiven. Just pause with me for a second and let that sink in. Your sins against an all-knowing, holy, God is light, that God, forgiven. Why were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? Through one act of disobedience. Sin is what separates us from God. The wages of sin is death. Jesus came, and as we're going to see in a second, he is the reason why we can say your sins are forgiven. Every single one of them. Past, present, future. 
the tense here that's used, and it's not as clear in the ESV, but it's the perfect tense. Your sins have been forgiven, and it has a continual impact on the rest of your life. Have been, done, completed in the past. And what is the basis for this forgiveness? He says, I'm writing to you little children. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Or another translation puts it this way, because of his name. We sing a song a little bit ago, right? What a beautiful name. What a powerful name. If we were to go back to the Gospel of John and the purpose statement in the Gospel of John in chapter uh, 20 says, um, these signs I've written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life. Anybody know how it finishes? In his name. That you may have life in his name. One commentator says that there was a Semitic belief that the name stands for the, the identity of that person and to know the name gives a person access to that power. So what John is saying, if, if we say the name stands for the identity, the person and work in totality of Jesus, that's why your sins are forgiven. In other words, I could hear John saying, hey, hey, you guys remember in chapter one, verse six, when I said, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You're not the ones who walk in darkness. You're the ones who walk in light. You have been forgiven. Let me give you some homework, just because I don't have time here with you. Write this passage down, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14. Just go take that psalm, and you're going to see about the goodness and kindness and compassion of God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiving sins as far as the east is from the West. Go take and meditate on that this week and just, man, just pause to let that sink in. You, this is your identity. You are a forgiven child of God. Second, he says this in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He also repeats this Later on, he, he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. And again, I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. This is a, a Christological reference here because he's, you see the reference to the Father right above that. I write to you children, you know the Father. He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus was the one who was there at the beginning. He was there at the beginning of the church. And their knowledge of him in particular, his earthly life was extremely Important. Additionally here, John's not just talking about an intellectual knowledge. He is talking about a deep, ongoing, spiritual relationship. You know him. I could hear him saying this. Hey, remember in, in chapter 2 of 1 John, of verse 4, it said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth's not in him, 
but the truth is in you and you keep his commandments, you do know him. What we see combined here, when you reflect back to the the promises, the covenants made in the Old Testament, there were two main promises connected to the covenant in the Old Testament. One of them was this in Jeremiah 31. You shall know me from the least of these to the greatest. And then the second, I will remember your sins no more. And we see those great covenant promises come together here in 1 John. Your sins are forgiven and you know him. The third one is this. You have overcome the evil one. And then it's repeated down at the end. I I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome evil. The evil one. You you could jump forward to chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It's pretty clear the evil one here is referring to Satan, to to the devil. He represents everything that is opposed to God. Here's what John says. You have overcome the evil one. How can he say that? Again, assumed in all of these statements is the name of Jesus, the, the totality of of the person and the work of Christ. What Jesus did on the cross and in raising from the dead is defeated sin and death. If you are in Jesus, there is victory for you today. You can claim, I have overcome the evil one because I look to my Savior. He died and paid the penalty for sin. On that cross, and I've looked to him. My sin has been forgiven. Sin has no more victory or power over me in death. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God, and I am in him. Your assurance of eternal, of your eternal destiny. Get this. It's not based on how great you are. It's based on how great Jesus is. Every single one of these statements. And the more he becomes a treasure in your life, the more confident that assurance of eternity should come. So let me just make this practical. These truths that John says of the church there, can be true of you, but only in, only in the sense that you are in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. The blood of Jesus washes away sin. And because of what he has done to bring access to the Father that you may know him. And he is the one who has destroyed the devil. So if there's any victory, it's the victory you have because of Jesus. Now, John adds two additional phrases in verse 14 to this overcoming language. And he actually says it before. He says, he says I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. I want you to just think a bit. What does the devil want to do in your life? What does Satan want to do? What does the evil one want to do? 
I think we could boil it all down into two phrases. On the one hand, Satan wants to accuse you. And on the other hand, Satan wants to tempt you. Let me talk about that first one. He wants to accuse you with the sin that you've already done. One of my favorite songs is by a group called Shane and Shane, and it's called Embracing Accusation. And they write a song. It's really, they say, this is the song of the devil. This is the song the devil sings. And I've just pulled out a few of the phrases. I'm not going to sing it to you. Like if I bring, bring our band up here to, to lead us. But hear a few of the phrases. Here's what the devil says. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. I hear him say, I am cursed and gone astray. I can't gain salvation. I hear the devil say, look, the penalty of sin is death, and so death is mine. And then here's how the song ends. Oh, the devil singing over me, an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray, singing the first verse so conveniently over me, he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. You know what Satan wants to do in your life? He wants to bring up all of those sins. And he wants to say, you're cursed. Death is yours. But the gospel says, you're a liar. I am forgiven. Jesus paid the penalty for every single one of those sins. You can keep dangling them, but they have no power and no guilt and no shame because I am in Jesus. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus. That is the gospel. And that's why I would plead with you today to run to Jesus. Because when you run to Jesus, there is no power that sin has over your life. But when you leave Jesus, Satan will accuse you all day. And you're guilty every single time. But the second way, he wants to tempt us. Promise me, I'm going to come back to overcoming the evil one in a second. But just hang in there with me. So if he accuses us, he accuses us by sin we've already done. If he tempts us, he tempts us with sin that we have yet to do. You see that? So backwards and forwards. How does Satan tempt us? He lies. John Piper puts it this way. I don't have it on the screen, so just listen up here with me. He says, and in all his lying, he boils it down to two lies. In every test, his lie is, God is bad. And in every temptation, his lie is, sin is better. God is bad, and sin is better. He has one tune to play, and he plays it in a thousand ways. Where in your life right now are you letting the evil one lie, and you're believing it? that God is bad? What circumstance is your ear just being tuned to think God is not good? Because here's what he, he, what he wants to do in, in your circumstance in life. If he can get you to the point where you are questioning the good character of God, you'll leave him. 
or you'll turn your back on him. But what about the second one? What's he dangling in front of you right now and saying, sin is better? The word of God gives us strength. When he says here, you are strong and the word of God abides in you, he's saying, here's how you've overcome the evil one. If the evil one spews lies, how do you combat the lies? You combat it with truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in your truth. John 17, 7. And so the way I talk back to the devil is with the truth of God's word. God, God isn't bad. Let me tell you over and over about the goodness and kindness of God. When you start believing that God is bad, it's because you're believing a lie and you're not believing the word. You're not abiding in the word of God. And so you're giving the devil a foothold in your life. Milton Vincent in his little book called A Gospel Primer and he puts it this way. I've got it on the screen here for us. He says, every time I deliberately disobey a command of God, it's because I am in that moment doubtful as to God's true intentions in giving me that command. Does he really have my best interests at heart? Or is he withholding something from me that I would be better off having? Such questions, whether consciously asked or not, lie underneath every act of disobedience. However, the gospel changes my view of God's commandments in that it helps me to see the heart of the person from whom those commandments come. When I begin my train of thought with the gospel, I realize if God loved me enough to sacrifice his son's life for me, then he must be guided by that same love when he speaks his commandments to me. Did you catch that? You see, we often see, oh, God loves me. He gave his son. Oh, this commandment, he's prohibiting me. He doesn't love me. No, he is guided by the same love that, sent, that led him to send Jesus when he says, flee sexual immorality. When he says, do not gossip. When he says, forgive 70 times seven. It's motivated and flowing from a loving God. And so Milton Vincent continues, he says, um, viewing God's commands and prohibitions in this light, I can see them for what they really are, friendly signposts from a heavenly father who was seeking to love me through each directive so that I might experience his very fullness forever. The word of God is how we overcome the evil one. I could hear First John saying, or John saying, hey, we're going to see later on in First John chapter 3, verse 8, he's going to say, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. But here he says, but you, you've overcome the evil one. You are in Christ. You are strong. Your faith in Christ and in God's word, the truth, you have overcome. And so it's this assurance this encouragement that sets the stage for the exhortation that is about to come. And so here's what he's saying. You are forgiven. You know the Father. You, you are in the light. You have fellowship with God. You're not of the devil. You've overcome the devil. Therefore, do not love the world. You guys see what he's doing there? 
It flows from our identity, the benefits and blessings we have in the gospel. So let's, let's wrap up our time by focusing on that last section, which is this. Deepen your love for God and doing his will. What we see, the main command of 15 through 17 is in that first phrase, do not love the world. And it's pretty clear. He gives that command, and then what he does, he gives incentives. Here's why you don't want to stake your life on loving the world. And now let me just pause for a second. When he talks about the world here, he's not talking about necessarily the created universe. Look, God created this world, and it is very good. We know that sin has distorted, and there's brokenness, but the original creation, the world in that sense— was created by a good God. Second, he's not talking about like, for God so loved the world that he gave like every like human individual. He's not, he's not talking about that. When he says, do not love the world here, he's referring to an evil organized system that's being controlled by Satan. The world and how sin and Satan corrupt and, and divert from God's intended purposes. And so, man, there's three reasons that he gives for not loving the world. Guys, we need to hear these today. God, give us grace to hear these and respond rightly. The first one is this. Love for the world is incompatible with love for God. Look at the text. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Guys, this is clear. Love for the world and love for the Father are not compatible. And what he does here, he walks through and he gives reasons why in verse 16. He says, here's why they're not compatible. For all that's in the world, and then we see three things here. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in life. Let me just walk through those here. What does he mean? The desires of the flesh. He's referring to desires for things we don't have. The problem isn't that God created a bad world. The problem is humans, as a result of sin, make idols out of God's good created world. We all see within us that there are desires, there are longings that beg to be satisfied. And what we do is we run after broken cisterns over and over and over again to satisfy our desires. And yet there is only one thing that can satisfy your desires, and it's God. Here's the deal. Every single one of us have to come to a point where we realize my story is a story that I can point back and say, you know what? I've, I've tried out the desires of the flesh and they always leave me longing for more and they don't satisfy. You've got, maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm at that point where I've, the flesh isn't satisfying. And here's what God's saying. I'm here to satisfy you beyond all measure. Come to me, come to the table feast, eat, drink from the fountain of living water. Second, he says, the desire of the eyes. Again, desire, and look, the, the eyes aren't bad, but the eyes are the window 
into our hearts. And so that's why Jesus in Matthew 5 can say, even anyone who looks lustfully at a woman with his eyes has committed adultery. It says, this is what's going on in the heart. It, it flows in the way we view and the way we look and the way we grasp and want things, desires for things that we don't have. All of the world's lurement, what it dangles out there, is a focus on present enjoyment without considering eternal consequences. Hey, can I combat that real briefly with the truth of God's word? Psalm 1611 says this. With you is the pathway of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The devil's gonna dingle out, he's gonna dangle out here and he's gonna say, sin is better. And God's gonna say, you may receive a short-term pleasure, but at my right hand are pleasures for eternity. And in my presence, there is fullness of joy. You might get a little bit of joy out of that, but here's the offer of the gospel. I will give you joy for eternity and it'll never run dry. If you're at that point, come to Jesus because that is, in essence, the offer of the gospel is those who are not satisfied, come to me and I will give you life. I will give you rest. I will satisfy your longings. And then the third area, he says here, the pride of life, or we might translate it the boastful pride of life or the arrogance produced by material possessions or actually like this, the boasting of what one has and what one does. This is, this is the pride in what we have. And, and in either it's my, my job status, my, my social status, my, my material possessions. His concern is that when you love the world, you, you, you focus and put joy and confidence in things that are not from God. Maybe there's a desire to outshine others. what happens is that the material security that comes from all of that leads you to say, you know what? I don't even need God. So do not love the world because it's incompatible with love for God. Second, if you love the world, you will die with the world. In verse 17, he says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires. I don't have a ton of time here, but I would just say this. If you store up treasures in earth, your death will be a tragic loss. If you, if you make your life the pursuit of, of short-term desires of the flesh, of the, eye, of the eyes, of your job status, of the material possessions and whatever you can collect. When you die, you lose it all. And so that's why Jesus said, look, here's what makes sense. If we're gonna, if, if our life on earth is but a dot and eternity is a line, don't live for the dot, live for the line. Store up treasures in heaven. 
so that when you die, you're going to be with your treasures and not be a complete tragic loss. For those of you that have started your retirement planning, what, what do you buy stock in or what, do you, what mutual funds? Do you buy stock or mutual funds in businesses that are tanking? Now, you may wait till, even if you're buying something that maybe a, uh, something's dropped really low, the goal is that you see in the future what? There, there's something that's going to grow or you'd be foolish. Well, then why would you spend your life loving the world if it's going to be passing away? There is no future hope for those who center their life on loving the things of the world. Rather, what should we do? It's the last statement there. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is truth. This is truth. If you love God and love doing his will, you will live forever. And what John's making clear here is that there's, you can't just say, yeah, man, I love God. How, how does love, what must come along with love for God? Love for his will. What would you think about me if I said, I love Lee, but I don't give a rip about what she desires in life? You would question my love. In the same way, John's saying, if you truly love God, it follows that you say, your kingdom come, your will be done. So a love for God flows. I want, I want to pray. I want to pursue, God, your will be done in my life. So I want to close with, with this. As you look inward, and you reflect on your love for the world or love for God, if you realize that you lack love for God, there's two options. The first option is this. You don't know God. You haven't been born again. And so I would just play, if you're, if you're, the, the, the next step for you isn't to go out and try to cultivate some type of love for God and, and to try to do better. The step for you is to look to Jesus and confess your sin and call upon him to forgive you and save you. But maybe there's in this room a sphere of people that say, you know what? My love for God has grown cool and weak. It's grown cold and weak. What do you do? I would say do the same thing that I just told the first person to do. Fall on your knees. Confess your sin. Look to Jesus. Because what fuels love for God are these truths. You're forgiven. You know him. You have overcome the world. My prayer and hope is that increasing confidence, as we have increasing confidence that Tanner is gonna continue to make steps to get well, that we would grow in courage and strength in today, and yet it would move us to vigilance and deeper devotion to say, God, 
I want to love you with all my heart. God, show me where I'm believing the lies of Satan. God, I know I've, I've got victory. But God, show me even daily how, how I walk in that victory and increasingly believe in the truth of your word and finding satisfaction in you. So God, we pray. God, would your will be done? Would your kingdom come? God, would you stir affections in us, not for the world, but love for you? God, would you help us see your commands, not as prohibitions, but as friendly signposts from a loving Father directing us in the pathway of life? God, increasingly, would you help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Father, we pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, that your kingdom would come. We ask that in Christ's name.